Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, so um, it was a while ago now that someone sent me um, a chapter of a book entitled The Politics of Language. And as a communicator, I was fascinated by it because um, I'm always convinced and concerned with like, how do you say things in a way that causes them to have an effect? What's the connotation of this word and that word? How is someone going to hear this? How is someone going to receive that? And so as I, as I took that chapter in, like, my, my mind was alive, right? Um, because as a communicator, it was brilliant. It was full of all sorts of insights and incredibly practical. But the more that I turned it around in my head, theologically, I thought there's something a bit problematic about the approach here. So here's why. Because the assumption that the chapter made as it sort of went on is that the primary problem going on in our society is a matter of language, not a matter of lens. And the solution then is that Christians even have the need in order to be very much more careful in their language so as to be able to create a kind of discourse publicly that we could all enjoy together. And that's actually helpful. And I believe as a leader that like the prerequisite nowadays is that you have both courage and nuance in the way that you communicate. You just can't, you can't lead anyone or anything without that kind of nuance. But I was troubled just as a pastor and as a theologian to go, if we think that changing our language will fix a problem rather than changing our lens through which we see the world, I think we've put a Band-Aid on a, on a, on a gaping wound. Because in, in reality, what we need is to, to, to be confronted with the fact that for many of us, even Christians, the primary lens through which we see the world, the primary grid through which we evaluate things, perceive them, is something other than the gospel. That even for well-meaning Christians, things like political differences, things like power dynamics, things like our own personal set of issues and circumstances often become the first thing that we see rather than seeing through the lens of the gospel, seeing through the lens of the kingdom of God. And so what we need to do actually is to ask the key question of like, how do we actually keep the gospel central? How do we keep the gospel central so that it becomes the, the primary thing through which we see life rather than something that has shifted to the periphery? Because the reality is, when we start to begin to make assumptions beyond what the scriptures say in terms of the centrality of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we inevitably experience gospel drift such that what should be central becomes periphery. Now, I'm betting that you perhaps have experienced this. Because when the gospel shifts and drifts from what's central in your life, from what is satisfying in the highest sense, then easily the faith becomes something blah, or at worst becomes something belligerent. But if the gospel is central, then the themes that Paul's weaving in this letter of grace, love, charity, kindness, overflowing, actually begin to characterize our dialogue as a church 
and increasingly so ours as a society. So how do we keep the gospel central? Okay, look with me at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Let me just read the introduction to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. So who's writing? Paul is writing this letter and he's writing it to the recipient Timothy. And he calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Just in a few verses, he goes on to describe what that is, okay? So his true child in the faith has the aim, this is verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, if you read the next verse, whom we could say probably are not Paul's true children in the faith, but they're more like Paul's prodigal sons. Paul's prodigal sons have swerved from this being the marker of their life. And so, like, if you just keep reading, they've drifted into different doctrines. They've devoted them things that promote speculation rather than stewardship. They've swerved from love and grace and faith. They've wandered into vain discussions, and they've started making confident assertions about things that they don't have understanding about. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still reading the Bible here, right? This is not my Facebook feed, right? This is not like vain discussions, um, confident assertions where people don't have the full picture, um, where different doctrines, speculation, rather than faithful stewardship. This is, this is our time. Listen, the Bible connects to the questions and issues of our everyday lives. And the kind of drift that was occurring here that Paul was writing to Timothy about has occurred in our own day as well. Prodigal sons of Paul have drifted from the gospel and its center point in their lives. And perhaps they never got the gospel in the first place. It's like time and pressure, like your Instant Pot, if you have one of those, has made it such that some recipes produce this incredible aroma in your house, right? And it's like the whole house fills with this smell. But if you get a bad recipe, right, all of a sudden the bottom of the pan is burning and smoke is everywhere. What's happened here is Paul's prodigal sons have, have taken a bad recipe for life, a life that's not centered on the gospel, and it's begun to smoke. Whereas what he's encouraging them to is to keep the grace and love of the Lord Jesus as the primary lens, the foremost grid through which they see and evaluate everything. So, hey, here's the question. How do we keep the gospel central? Here's my answer for you today. Only fresh faith can prevent gospel drift. Only fresh faith can prevent gospel drift. Let's keep reading. In verse 12, this is the passage that Rebecca read for us. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his surface, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. The first movement of fresh faith that has to be present in your life, if you are going to keep the gospel foremost, rather than let other things creep into its place, is that you need the movement of former to faithful. You need former to faithful in your life on repeat, 
put it this way, for the gospel to say central, your life must have this pattern of formerly I was this, and then I learned a faithfulness like this. Now, listen, it takes one of those moments for you to become a Christian. That's what Paul is recounting for us here. The time when he moved from this former position of a blasphemer, persecutor, violent man, and then to faithfulness. But if it takes one of those moments to become a Christian, it takes many of those moments for you to live as a Christian. Your life has to have the cycle of, I was stuck in these things. Literally, I needed the strength of Jesus to pull me out, empower me to begin to live a different way. Formal to faithful movements have to mark you consistently. Right? This is the life story of Paul that he's telling for good reason for this church. And as he tells it, right, he's, he's, he's saying very clearly conversion is essential to Christianity. Conversion is essential to Christianity. There has to be a former and then faithfulness element in your life. But I hope for my kids that they never know a day when they are not a Christian. Like, that's my goal with Laura as we raise them in the faith, that they would never know a time where they say, hey, no, I don't believe that. I am not a Christian. That's not who I am. And so even with that dynamic, if they don't have former to faithful movements in their life story, they will never get the gospel and actually be a Christian. Even if you operate out of a Christian home, and you've known the Lord for as long as you can remember, if you don't have moments where you go, yeah, the Lord did some work for me there. He unstuck me from that, empowered me for a new kind of life, then you won't have an appreciation for the gospel, and the gospel will not stay fresh for you. This phrase here, that he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, can be a bit misleading. Listen to this. One of the scholars that I read about the passage says, Paul's not arguing here that Christ foresaw that in spite of his sin, Paul would then prove himself faithful in the end. Rather, the sense here is the potency of divine calling to achieve certain results. It's not that he said, oh, Paul's going to be a stable man, so I'm going to bet on him. It's no that the grace of God appeared in his life so strongly so as to produce faithfulness as a result. For the gospel to stay central, you must have former to faithful movements. Let's look at that. The gospel's powerful enough to transform lives, to change people. Do you see the former picture Paul paints? He says he was a blasphemer. That's one who denies God, either by like outright cursing God, or it's somebody who says, hey, I'm just gonna think carelessly of God, disregard him. He was a persecutor of the early church. And he was an insolent opponent. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't know what that means. It means, if you look into it, it means he was overbearing. He was a violent man. He had that kind of pride about him that probably came from the place of being empty inside. And the insecurity inside produced a kind of arrogance outside that somehow in the human experience creates the worst kind of behavior. Ordering the imprisonment and the death of the early Christians. And then what about the faithful? Well, what is he passing on to his true child? He's passing on love from a pure heart. So this clean, this innocent, this virtuous heart, good conscience, that which is profitable, that's morally generous and considerate. 
a sincere faith, one that's genuine, that's real, and that has a trust in the person of Jesus. Now think about this for a second. You might go, okay, I don't, I don't know about a persecutor, I don't know about a blasphemer, but I'm not those things. But Paul's writing to some audience, these men, especially those who had gospel drift about them, who actually probably felt a little bit like, oh, he got me there. And maybe if you think a little bit more about if there's a pattern in you that disregards God, or there's something in you that has a little bit of angst towards Christians or certain groups of Christians, or something in you that might have a bit of pride where it's easy to look down on others. His story is specific enough, but broad enough that it connects with the people he's writing to then, and I think it connects with me at least now. Listen, for the gospel to stay central, you have to have this moment of, I was formerly this, and now I've learned faithfulness. And what Paul's saying in here is, I was weak. Like, I literally could not have done other. This is what I did. But into my weakness, Christ showed up with strength. This kind of dynamism in the root word that empowered me for a different kind of living. Look at me. We hate weakness. Like, we avoid weakness like the plague. I don't know if you can still say that phrase, but like, we avoid weakness, right? And so much so that like, we, we want to appear strong and we want to be strong. But there's something about embracing weakness that's essential to keeping the gospel central. There's something about weakness that sets you up to have fresh faith. This moment where, where, where lights came on, on the Damascus Road, which is the first time Paul met Jesus, and he was blinded, thrown back onto his back by the power and the light and the glory of Jesus. That was one time that Jesus showed up in strength and the lights came on. But Paul's life was the repeated pattern of that. It wasn't the only time Jesus showed up in strength for him. It wasn't the only time the lights came on, revealing where he was an heir and where he needed to grow in faithfulness, right? That was a repeated pattern for him, and it should be a repeated pattern for us, so much so for Paul that by the end of his life, he was saying things like, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. Because Jesus had showed up to him in light and said, my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you even in your weakness. And Paul said, I'll boast in weakness then so that more of God's power could work in me. So what do we know? We know that faith stays fresh when we have a growing awareness of our own weakness and sin, and also a growing awareness of God's holiness and power and strength. And when you see both your sin, weakness, and God's strength, power, in ever-increasing measure, you know what it does? He creates that incredible gap for faith and for the Lord Jesus to show up. The first movement of faith that I see here is from former to faithful. Let's look at the second one. The second movement is what I would call from faithless to faithful with two L's, all right? Faithless, I don't have faith, I'm void of faith, to faithful, I'm filled with faith. Let's keep reading here. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That word unbelief literally means faithless. It means lacking faith, without faith. 
and the grace of the Lord Jesus overflowed for me. Overflowing means superabundant, gushing forth, lavish, more than enough with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, my sin was here, but God's grace was here, right? I was stuck incredibly in sin and ignorance and unbelief, but then the grace of God overflowed in such a way that faith filled up within my soul. A trust in God came. What he's saying here is that, as we'll see in a minute, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. This is what he says, right? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, I love the way the old saint, Dr. Ray Ortland, says this. He says that the gospel is good news for bad people. The gospel is good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. He says we need multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Now listen, the faith is a creed. Right? The, the, the Christian faith is a set of convictions, beliefs. And, and, but to embrace the faith and even to live by faith is not something static. It's not as if the faith is this vast ocean of still, stale water that we just hold to and say it's there. No, actually, what we believe about the good news is that it's much more like the ocean that's constantly crashing upon the beach, wave after wave, bringing in fresh food, bringing in sea life, constantly working and moving. Because the faith is resting upon a person who is dynamic, right? It is always moving. We need wave after wave of grace coming towards us. So for the gospel to stay central, you need to move from faithless to faithful. And not just once, but you need to move that way on repeat. I would even say that everyone in your gospel community, if you're in one of our gospel communities, myself included, needs to have that in their life on a consistent basis. Where in some measure, we're going, hey, yeah, I don't really trust God there. I'm struggling to believe what the Bible says there. Yeah, I'm not quite sure God sense God with me there. I am in doubts here. And part of what happens as we gather together in community is we encourage one another to trust the Lord such that our faith is renewed and and grows full again. The language here is of so much generosity and, and abundance that there is always more for us to believe, to trust. And so the movement from faithless to faithful is actually something you should experience regularly when you come together in gospel community. Like you should be seeing people admitting that they struggle here and then finding by God's strength the courage to trust him there. That's the dynamic that a gospel-centered community should have. For the gospel to say central, your life has to have the movement of faithless to faithful. This week, Laura and I sat um, on the couch reflecting on the best pockets of Christian community that we've ever been a part of. Um, And honestly, um, 
we've had a lot of experience. Um, like we're not that old, but like by our combined experience of being in small groups is, is sort of significant. And so as we're reflecting on it, we're going, okay, what, what made this really good? And I've already told our gospel community leaders that like we are not trying to like hit grand slams here, right? Like there's, this isn't like you're innovating something new, doing something perfect, and all of a sudden every other Christian community you've ever been a part of is sort of like put to shame. Like no, like the magic is not in the method, it's in the habit of being together so that God might work through others and work through you as you minister to one another in community. But even with that being said, we did sort of pinpoint, hey, I think this is one thing that marks all of our best experiences. Wanna know what it was? It was fresh faith. Like in one sense, there was a community where like the, the men in the group were just like, dog, like we are going to be honest. Like we are gonna expose the darkest corners of our heart to one another because we need to be known and God's light needs to shine there. In another community, there was a woman who was just so desperate and so daring to trust the Lord moment by moment. She was always telling stories of trusting the Lord throughout her week. She was always doing weird things like pausing our conversation to pray over, or to pray over someone or to sing over someone. She would literally stop the conversation and be like, hey, I just think you need to hear this song. And she's like, it says in Colossians I should do that. And I was like, for real? Like, you're going to just sing over us? And it was beautiful. It was powerful. Because she just believed moment by moment God was there. It was fresh. She was trusting God to be at work. Now listen. What do we know? We know that fresh faith comes as we have an increasing awareness of our own need, that we are sinners. And as we have an increasing awareness of God's holiness, goodness, and mercy. When those two things grow in our lives, when we can say that Christ came to save sinners, and that means me, we set ourselves up for a kind of fresh faith that's powerful. When, when mercy washes over you wave after wave, you can start to say, Yes, I'm a sinner and I need, I need grace. I need mercy. You'll learn to say things like, yeah, last week I was really doubting God here. And then I came to a spot where like, I, could just, I trusted him and he came through. Last year, I just, when it says this in the Bible, I was like, that's ridiculous. And then this year, God's been working on me to the point where I can embrace that as truth. Last month, I was just really hurting and wrestling. Growing cynicism, just rising up within me. And somehow this month, through the gentleness of your question last week and your prayers this week, I just feel in a much healthier place with the Lord. Could we move as a church constantly from faithless to being faithful so that our faith stays fresh? Let me show you this last one. From flawless to foremost. From flawless to foremost. Verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe for him for eternal life. 
to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, for the gospel to stay central, your life has to have flawless to foremost movements in it. I'm just, I'm just going to point out the obvious. It's kind of hard to say that phrase for us, isn't it? Like there's something in us that's like, I'm kind of glad Paul's the foremost. <laughs> I mean, like, at least he gets the title, right? He's the foremost of sinners. I, great. Like he'll, I'll, I'll give that one to him, all right? But, but in, in reality, what's he writing for again? Right? Why is he telling his story? It says it right here as an example for those of us who would come to believe. So who's he writing for? He's writing for them, he's writing for us. And if he's writing his example for us saying, I'm the foremost, then that's probably something that we should follow his example into. And the crazy thing is, if Paul was just able to say like, oh man, the mercy of God showed up, I was the foremost of sinners. And now I am faithful and I am so godly. That would be great. But instead, he's writing what? As the foremost. Right? He still sees his need. This brother wrote half the New Testament. And he he still needs mercy. He revels in mercy. He's come to the point where his own sin his own weakness, even his own wounds. He's come to embrace them in such a way because God has met him in a profound way in those spaces of life. And he's, he's become transformed. But foremost is something that still rings true. And it's not as though as he's walked with the Lord and as he's done ministry, as he's planted churches, as he's written epistles, that he's gotten worse. <laughs> I can tell you now, he's not worse than he was when he started. But the reality of those things is weightier for him than when he started. Because at first glance, he only saw from a distance his own sin. But now he sees it up close. But even as it grows closer and more focused, more weighty, God's grace only abounds for him more and more. He's not getting worse but his awareness of need is getting better. So for the gospel to stay central, you have to move from flawless to foremost. Because if we're we're straight with ourselves, most of us would like to be flawless. (laughs) It doesn't take much for us to go, I wish I didn't screw up there, right? Or I wish that I could just do that perfectly. We want to be flawless. There's something in us that wishes we didn't need mercy. There's something in us that even has a bad taste at times for mercy. And when you start to get that distaste for the mercy of God in your mouth, it is such a clear sign that you're experiencing gospel drift. That something else has become primary in your sight, in your thinking, some other set of assumptions, some other worldview, some other trust, other faith has actually gone center and the mercy of God and Jesus has gone periphery. Do you have a bad taste in your mouth when it comes to mercy? Or have you learned to revel in it in the way that the Apostle Paul does? 
So I'm convinced that one of the lasting effects of the sin in the world is the way that children act at bedtime, right? And it's not just my family. It is a universal problem um, because it's, some, it's like this. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to avoid their bedtime. It just like comes automatic. It's instinctual. It's like, can I have one more book? Can I have, one? they even use the good stuff. One more hug, one more kiss, right? My favorite is, oh, okay, I forgot something downstairs. What do you mean you forgot something downstairs? But lately it's been, can I have one more drink? Like, who teaches a kid to want one more drink of water? Like, one more drink. And the problem we've had at my house is the, the water in the faucet in the upstairs bathroom kind of doesn't have a good taste to it. I don't know what's wrong with pipes, um, but it just doesn't taste very well. And so, okay, so we're trying to get ahead of that. And we'll go downstairs, we get a pitcher of water, and then we bring the good downstairs water upstairs and set it in the bathroom so we can fill a cup and we can get the last drink with the good water. But, but then if the water stays in the pitcher, you know, for, for a day, because you don't drink the whole pitcher or two days, what happens to the water in the pitcher? It gets stale, right? So now the water in the pitcher is not downstairs water anymore. It's stale water, right? Oh my gosh, these kids. But, um, but seriously, if we can tell the difference between stale water and fresh water, can we tell the difference between stale faith and fresh faith? Because there is a difference of taste. And somehow, when mercy has grown stale for you, and all of a sudden when you taste it on your tongue, it produces that reaction. You know that you've begun to drift. You know that the gospel has moved the periphery. It's, it's, like, it's like that water bottle, right? That straight out of the cooler full of ice gets handed to you. And it tastes so good, like so cold. But then if you drink half of it and leave it in your car and then you're out and about running through life and it's been sitting in your car and you're going, dang, I'm thirsty. And then you try and take that water that's been sitting in your car warm in a plastic bottle and put it up to your lips. How does it taste? You don't want to drink that. I don't even know what plastic in the water by that time. I don't know, you know, like it's grown stale. But here's the thing. We need to keep coming back for fresh water, which is there abundantly, Paul is saying, wave after wave. And this matters not just for you, it matters for others, right? Because do you want to know, have you ever thought about this, who are the best missionaries? They're new Christians, right? They're ones for whom the water is so fresh. It tastes so good. And from their own fresh faith and experience, they hand out that cold, ice-cold bottle to another, and it tastes good as well. But for us, if we're going to even hold out the faith to others, and it's going to be stale, a half-drink and warm bottle, it won't work. We need to be able to see when our faith has grown stale. There's good news for us. There's good news because mercy is greater. And you've not been handed one water bottle with which you need to be very careful with and to keep and to hold and keep it cold. You've been handed an ocean full of tide that sometimes flows gently upon the beach and other times crashes with great waves. 
but it must flow onto the beaches and the shores of your soul in a way that keeps your trust in him fresh if you are going to avoid gospel drift and live a gospel-centered life. So how do we know? How do we know that fresh faith can be ours? Well, well, when this is happening, when you begin to see yourself more as the foremost, and you begin to see God as ever faithful with another wave of mercy and grace for you. How do we keep the gospel central? Well, it's only fresh faith that prevents gospel drift. And it's good news, I think, because faith, even by definition, is something that you don't strive and muster for, try and work harder. Faith, by definition, is something that you receive. It is a, it's a trust. And so the question for us is, like, it, are, we, are we open in heart and soul to receive the overflowing grace of the Lord Jesus? And one, if you're to change the metaphor into light, one way to throw a shutter open is to grow in your awareness of God's holiness, strength, and mercy. And the other shutter thrown open is your understanding and awareness of your own sinfulness, weakness, and wounds. Because Jesus, in all of his mercy and grace, meets you in the gap. Let's pray that we would gain fresh faith. Father, would you encourage our souls this morning with the work of the Lord Jesus upon the cross? He is the ever faithful one, even though we are faithless at times. He is the one who never had a former, right, who's always faithful. He is the one who was not the foremost, but who bore the cost of being the foremost so that we wouldn't have to be flawless. Oh, may we, may we feel the release of that. We don't have to be flawless. You are the perfect one. And for us who struggle to keep the gospel central, for us in a world where there's so many other bits of news and information, the gospel being news, announcement, there's so many other things that can flip our lens to another color that can flip our thinking to another grid. It's a comfort to our souls to know that you don't stand aloof with arms crossed at our weakness, but you, as Paul says, want to display your perfect patience. Oh, would your patience come over us, Lord? God, would your patience wash over us? Would your kindness come and greet us so that we might gain a fresh trust in your work on the cross and not just your work, but your person, you, Jesus, available to us, walking with us so that we might learn to live a life centered upon the gospel. It's for the sake of your great name, the immortal, the invisible, the glorious, the honorable name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.